Turn with me, please, or listen on as I read now. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, now for the fourth time. And hear God's word. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, and these he also glorified. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, how grateful we are for your word and the promises which it contains. Lord, may we may we say to you that though we love all of your word, uh, there are some passages which stand out to us uh, with special power and uh, and which we love. And, And this is surely one of them. We thank you for speaking to us so tenderly, so kindly. We thank you for the words of assurance which flow out of you unto us in your word. We, we thank you for this eighth chapter to the book of Romans, and we ask you that you might build us up in our faith, or perhaps call us to faith for the very first time through the preaching of the word, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> One of you said to me uh, after the, the, the sermon uh, last Sunday morning, it was the third sermon on this text, uh, this is now the fourth uh, But he said to me, this is just so edifying. This subject is so rich. It is so edifying. And and I find that I agree. And and, and I'm the one, of course, who has the benefit of of staying with these texts longer than you. I get to stay with them all week. And I think I can honestly say that I have never found, up to this point in my Christian life, any study of Scripture that has been more edifying to me than these three verses I am not inclined because of that to to be in any hurry, to rush through it. Uh, And I find that for all that I have to say, I have more to say. Uh, You know, this is the fourth sermon. I thought I would be done, and yet uh, a whole whole fifth sermon occurred to me this week. In fact, it's already done. Thank God for that, because I got a busy week coming up with some travel. Well, let's stay with the text for a while. Let's let's marvel at what the Lord is saying to us here. Uh, Let's enjoy it, and let's say together... You know, this is one of the most edifying passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. If you, if you have no other conviction than that, uh, well, uh, I'd say you're doing, you're doing all right. What the Apostle Paul is reflecting upon here uh, and, and magnifying even uh, for the comfort and the consolation of believers, as he's been doing ever since chapter 5, but especially in chapter 8, is the plan of God. He is setting before believers... Uh, To use another word, the purpose of God. Here is what the Lord has purposed for believers from all eternity. Earlier on, he was speaking of us as sons, but but even that isn't strong enough. He says, you know, a Christian is someone who's a son of God. Chapter 8, verse 14 uh, through 17. Even before that, in chapter uh, 5 and chapter 6, a believer is someone who's been placed into Christ. But even then, in the great mind of the Apostle Paul, he realized that the comfort that these thoughts offer would, would not be, well, it wouldn't go all the way unless he was able to say, do you realize that, 
This has always been the plan of God for believers. He has always willed this. He's always felt this way about us. He's always regarded us in Christ. If we were to talk, uh, as some theologians do, of, of appalling theology, I think we would have to say, viewing Romans and Ephesians as his two, uh, the, the, the two high points of his theology, the thing that stands supreme in the mind of the Apostle Paul is the plan of God. It's the thing that he marvels at most. It's the thing that fills him with wonder and love uh, to his Savior and to his God. You see, he doesn't just reflect upon it in a cold academic way. It's clear, uh, and, and I hope that you are made to feel this way too. He delights in it. He relishes in it. Now, I have to say, uh, much more so than Romans, uh, the book of Ephesians, this is the master theme. In the book of Ephesians, and you'll see me quoting Ephesians quite a bit in this sermon. In Ephesians, Paul is, as it were, standing beside Christ in the heavenlies, and he is considering all that God is doing and all that God has purposed from all eternity and all that he will do from that standpoint. He brings us up into the very heavenlies. He argues uh, for all that he argues from that vantage point. Here, admittedly, in Romans, he's speaking to us with our feet planted on the ground. We're in a world, uh, well, he says, that is filled with suffering, the present age. He's speaking to us, as I say, as we are. But even then, he brings to us the great plan of God. And as I consider that great plan, you know, there are many objections to the doctrine of election. The doctrine of predestination. The doctrine which says that I didn't choose God, but God chose me. Indeed, he chose me from all eternity. The overwhelming impression that I am left with is that God is a God of all grace. You see, this is the strongest and the most compelling argument for the grace of God. I feel like Paul when he said at the beginning of 1 Timothy, I am what I am by the grace of God. You see, that's what he's saying. If I've been called, if I've been justified, if I'm going to be glorified, it's all because of the grace of God. It wasn't anything in me, nor will it ever be because of anything in me. You see, that's the way to set your theology straight, whether you consider salvation as it was conceived in the mind of God in eternity or as it comes to me now in the present as he calls me and justifies me or as it's completed on the last day. Man's works never enter in. God, I, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but, uh, and I don't want to steal the thunder later on in the sermon, but let me just say it now. God doesn't look on us and say, uh, well, he doesn't find something that's lovely. He finds something that's wretched. He finds something that's deplorable. He considers us as we are fallen in Adam, sinners, haters of God, utterly fallen, rebels. And it is about such people that he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies It's the wonder of grace. That's the overwhelming impression as we consider the grace of God or the plan of God. It's the grace of God with respect to me. I am what I am by the grace of God. I never could be a Christian but for God's grace and his gracious plan formed in eternity. It's all grace, nothing but grace, grace upon grace. That's the language of the Christian from all eternity. God did not begin to be gracious to me the moment I believed. That's the Arminian fallacy. That's not it. He was always gracious from all eternity. That, uh, well, only that thought is capable of encapsulating the thought I'm trying to express. Here is the believer, Paul says, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He's been justified, having been justified by faith. What's true about him? He's standing in the grace of God. You see, he's immovable. Nobody can take him out of the grace of God. Now that God has placed him there, he's secure. 
By grace he's been saved and not of works. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Well, as you, as you can see, I'm still reflecting upon the plan of God. And having said so much about it in the last two sermons, I still have more to say about it. And, and the first thing I would say about it here, we are considering what is called the Ordo Salutis or the Order of Salvation. Order of Salvation. I, I want to draw special attention to uh, justification. That's the first uh, point under, well, under the first point. More thoughts on the plan of God. The first point under that is whom he justified. Now, why would I wish to stress that? Well, because that's what, what Paul has been stressing throughout the whole letter. The whole theme of Romans, and certainly the subsection, Romans chapters 5 through 8, is to stress not only justification as the central theme, but the certainty of justification. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's a thought that Paul hasn't left. He's still expanding it. He's still amplifying it. He wants us to see with perfect clarity what it means to have been justified by faith. Well, since that's the focus of the letter, it must be the focus here. It's no coincidence that he says these words, whom he justified. He doesn't just throw that in as part of the list. I'm arguing that's actually the focus here. I would also argue that from the standpoint of the ordo salutis, the order or the application of salvation. What is the chief blessing? What is the cardinal blessing? Justification by faith alone. Sinclair Ferguson says uh, this very thing in his book, The Whole Christ. He's arguing that we receive every grace, every blessing from Christ. And I said that last time. We do not receive our justification from our calling. That's the order of salvation. But we receive our justification in the same way we receive our calling and our glorification. All of them come from God through Christ, by grace, through faith. But if we were to pinpoint the cardinal blessing, unquestionably we would have to say justification is that. This is what Ferguson says. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, lies at the heart of the application of redemption. It's at the heart. The application or the order of salvation. Now that's not just what Ferguson is saying. That's what I think Paul is saying. That's why he's at such pains to argue this point. Justification by faith alone. By grace alone and Christ alone. And here what he is doing. As he is outlining uh, the structure of salvation and pinpointing justification as the central blessing, the all-important blessing, is describing our justification in the midst of this grand eternal scheme of redemption in order that it might appear to be all of God and thus all of grace. That's the point we need to see. What we need to see is that justification is by faith. In fact, uh, Ferguson says in the, in the title of that subsection, Justification by faith. Got it? It's not by works. That's what the believer has to see. It isn't because I am righteous that God regards me as righteous. No, God justifies the ungodly. And thus it must be by grace. Not by works, but by grace. And do you understand that locating uh, the motive and the plan of our justification, not in myself, but in God, 
The fact that from all eternity, God has planned and purposed my justification. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Do you understand that your justification flows out of the love of God for sinners formed in eternity? He did not look on you and regard you as righteous because you were. No, he regarded you, I say again, as one who was was utterly sinful and fallen in Adam. But to stress that this verdict of God, that he would regard the sinner in Christ as one who was just, was a verdict that he determined to give from all eternity, underscores its absolute certainty. This is something that God purposed to do. This is something, uh, well, that the believer can never lose because it never depended on the believer in the first place. God wasn't saying, well, you know, I'm waiting for him to believe. And just as soon as he believes, well, then I'll justify him. That's what I plan to do. That isn't the thought at all. The thought is I've determined, I've planned the man's justifications. And so I call him. I work faith in his heart and then I justify him. It's all the plan of God. As Paul says, he justifies us freely by his grace. See how the gracious character of justification uh, stands supreme in this argument. How clearly that emphasis uh, stands out when we consider our justification in light of God's eternal plan. But then beyond that, with respect to our justification, for God to justify us by his grace, freely by his grace, also means that he will not leave things there either. That's the other thing, or that's another thing Paul is saying. No, for those whom he justified, these he also glorified. That and only that completes the argument. In other words, Paul is saying it is impossible that God should justify us and not glorify us as well. Put another way, it is impossible that God should justify us and we ever lose our justification. But if our justification is certain, if it's fixed, if it's final, if it's a verdict that God will never go back on, well then, will he stop short of bringing his work all the way? It's impossible that these things should ever be separated. And so to see justification like this is to recognize that glorification is assured to me as well. And if you remember, that's in many ways ever since verse 17, the thing Paul's been getting at. He's saying, you know, we're suffering now. We're suffering a great deal. We're suffering in many ways uh, just as Christ suffered in this world. Our lot is one of suffering. But do you realize that glory is assured to the believer? Those, uh, well, how does he put it in verse 17? He says, if indeed we were joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. Well, here the argument is coming to us in yet another way. If he's justified you, he'll certainly glorify you. To be justified by God carries with it the assurance of our final glorification. But then go beyond that and recognize that implied in this. And certainly we recognize that between our justification and our glorification, a period of time awaits us. Though from the standpoint of the plan of God, these things belong together. In fact, they can both be spoken of in the past tense. But from our experience, we are suffering for the present. We've been justified. We've yet to be glorified. Indeed, as I say, you can't separate these things uh, from the plan of God, but they are separated in the experience of the believer. But Paul is saying, well, he's in, the implied thought is that there is something indeed that stands in between these two things, and that is the perseverance of the saints. 
not just justification and glorification, but everything that is in between. That is also included in the plan of God. If God has justified me, if God has called me, shall he not complete what he set out to do? That's what Paul says in another place, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm confident of this very thing that the Lord will complete what he's begun to do in you. And because his great purpose cannot fail, that means that the believer can never fall away from the faith. To be assured of my justification is to be assured of my glorification. And to be assured of my glorification is to be sure that I can never fall from grace. I can never get out of Christ. If I'm standing in grace, I will stand in grace always. The perseverance of the saints. I'm interested to note that uh, this is, um, well, let's see, this is a sub-point of a sub-point. Let me be honest with you. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached eight sermons just on that single point. The perseverance of the saints. Well, let me at least uh, bring it to your attention. Let us recognize that that's part of the argument as well. That everything that stands in between my calling and my justification and then my final glorification is certain to me as well. It's included in the all things that are working together for my good. And that becomes the argument in verses 31 and following. Paul, as it were, seems to anticipate it. He says, well, if all these things are true, can can God ever cease to love us? Can we fall out of the plan of God? Is there anything that can stand in the way? Verses 31 through 39, Paul says, if God has loved us, he will always love us. If God has saved us, there's no way... For us to fall away from his grace. But as another point about the plan of God. Let us see that God always aims at the highest good. Which is also vitally important to the whole argument. That all things work together for our good. And to our grasp of the argument. You notice what God is setting out to do. Is to conform us to the image of his son. Both in this life and that which is to come. That's what he's predestined us unto. To be conformed to the image of his son. He would have us to be like his son. In Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 he says. That he chose us in him. That we would be holy and blameless before him. He chose us to be holy. He chose us in him. He chose us as Paul says here to be like him. Do you notice what Paul doesn't say? As we consider the all things that are working together for our good, the purpose of God, he doesn't say that God aims at our happiness. If we could just get a hold of that thought, I think we would be helped uh, immeasurably in living out the Christian life. God isn't aiming at our happiness. Indeed, Paul is honest in the verses that precede. Our lives are filled with suffering. Indeed, I could go further. Our lives, to to a certain extent, uh, are filled with misery. The catechism talks that way. The the sin and the misery of man has fallen. But let us see, there's no malice of God here. He doesn't hate us. He isn't afflicting us to spite us. He's aiming at something higher than our present happiness. He's aiming at something that he's willed from all eternity. And that is nothing less than our complete conformity to Christ. And know that the believer could get a hold of that. Well, he'd lose sight of the the suffering for the present, as Paul says. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For all that I suffer now, that's verse 18. Well, it just doesn't compare to what will soon be true of me. And the glory that will be revealed in us is our conformity to Christ. Now you compare what you're suffering now to that. Get a hold of the purpose of God. Do you realize this is the highest thing that God, even God himself, could aim at? And aren't you glad once you realize that? Aren't you glad that in all your petty prayers, God doesn't always say yes? In fact, he often says no, because he's aiming at something higher than you are aiming at. You would be happy for the present. God would have you to be like his son. Do you realize that? Do you remember how the shorter catechism begins? What is the chief end of man? Or the larger catechism, which is even better, what is the chief and highest end of man? Well, the chief and the highest end of man is that he should be like Jesus Christ. It says, uh, the answer, as you know, is that he would glorify and enjoy God forever. But to do so is one who is like Christ. Well, you understand how it is possible that a sinner should be able to glorify and enjoy him forever. How else could a sinner enjoy this but that he be perfected in holiness along like Christ, along with Christ, I mean. Finally, with respect to the plan of God, I think we should ask this question, and that is, Why was there ever a plan of God in the first place? And the answer is, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, in so many ways, he says it was according to the counsel of his will. It was according to his good pleasure. If we read those three verses again, we'd see that. But what you you see in those verses and what you see throughout the Pauline letters as he glories in the great plan of God is that at stake... In the plan of God is something greater, far greater than man's salvation. And what was at stake, Paul says, is God's own glory. It was all, he says, to the praise of his own glory. That's the thing that God was magnifying in the salvation of man. It wasn't man, it was himself. Did you ever realize that it's God who is glorified in the salvation of sinners? Not man. Well, man is too. But God primarily. That's why he does it. He's not seeking our glory. He's seeking his own. And that's, by the way, why his plan can never fail, because uh, the glory of God is at stake. Not at a single point can this plan, as it was conceived in the mind of God from the foreknowledge to the glorification of sinners, not at a single point can it ever fail. All things will always work together for their good, because God is glorified in the salvation of the elect in Christ. It's all to the glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace, he says, I could I could read uh, some, uh, let's see, six verses from Ephesians 1 where Paul says that. But for the sake of time, I won't. The point I would simply make here is that that's always the argument. That God's grace is manifest in our salvation. It's something praiseworthy. It's something glorious. It's something Peter says that the angels look into with wonder and amazement. How is it that God should set his affection upon sinners? How is it that the very son of God should spill his blood for them. Indeed, how gracious does God appear that he should display the glory of his grace in us. Do you remember what Paul said in another place? Uh, Romans chapter five, verse 21, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. It's the grace of God that appears in our salvation again. That's the great impression that we have. It isn't that I've done anything to deserve it. That will that should never occur to you now. It certainly won't occur to you in glory. Forevermore, you will be praising the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. You'll be, well, as we surround the throne, we'll be adoring him 
will be praising him for the glory of his grace. How is it that I, a sinner, should be loved of God? Well, that's the next point, the next main point. The great thing here that we see is the love of God for us. Indeed, that's the first thing we notice in the plan of God. It's the love of God. I won't make the same point again here as I made last time, but foreknown is virtually equivalent to foreloved. And it is a love we discover in the plan of God, which reaches forward into time and even into eternity and accomplishes all that it set out to do. It is a love that can never be extinguished, a love that can never be overcome, not by anything in all the world, not even our sin, not even our rebellion. We'll see that becomes the argument in verses 31 and following. There's nothing that can overcome. There's nothing that can overturn the love of God. There's nothing that can make him, if I could put it as plainly as this, there's nothing that could make him feel differently about us. And so salvation, when I realize this, it's a matter of God's love. I was saying earlier, it's a matter of his grace. These are virtually synonymous. As soon as I say that, I realize it's not a matter of how I feel about God. My salvation doesn't depend upon that. It's entirely how he feels about me. And here's the staggering fact, which is almost impossible to comprehend. In fact, it is impossible to comprehend. It's that God, the Father in Christ, loved me from all eternity. From all eternity. In love, he predestined us to the adoption of sons. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And beyond that, it's the extent of that love that staggers us. That he should love us Well, like this, Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, verse four, he says, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, that's the only way to speak of the love of God. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see the argument is always the same? Ephesians chapter 3, uh, let's see, verse, verse 18. He's speaking of his prayer that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, I pray, Paul says, that you might know the vast extent of the love of God. And yet I realize that as soon as I begin to measure it, it's past finding out. And so the love of God shines brightest in all of this. It's the thing that amazes us and humbles us utterly. You see, this is something I found Martin Lloyd-Jones arguing for extensively in his sermons. There's no way to contend for predestination and be proud. The man who does so in a, in a prideful spirit is the man who doesn't understand of that of which he speaks. The man who really grasps this doctrine is the humblest man in the world. He is utterly staggered by the fact that God should love him from all eternity. Indeed, so great is his love, Paul has already told us in Romans chapter 5. He says, in essence, well, perhaps a man might love a, a righteous person, but to love an enemy, to die for an enemy. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is there anything greater than that? That God should love 
the sinner? Is there anything beyond it? And seeing this, is it possible to be proud? Do you understand why Paul says again and again that boasting is excluded? The man who boasts, the man who's proud, the man who's arrogant, is the man who doesn't understand the first thing about this doctrine. The doctrine of the grace of God, the doctrine of the love of God, even from all eternity. And, 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 and I would go even beyond that. You see, it's one thing to say that God has loved us from all eternity, but I go even further. God would convince us of it. He is not content that merely that we should be loved of him. No, he's only content when we're assured of it. When we know for a fact that I am loved of God. Here is a love, Paul says. And let us see, this, this is the thing... Well, this is the thing I think which stands out most clearly. When a man becomes a Christian, suddenly he realizes all that he's done, he's done for me. This great God has loved me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you realize what John is stressing? And that's the thing that occurs to us. In giving his son over to the hands of men, it's his love for me. And that is the direction the argument runs from here to the end of the chapter, verse 31 and following. Paul says, can anything separate us from the love of God? Can God himself ever cease to love us? And these are rhetorical questions. Nothing can ever separate us from his love. Nothing can ever make him cease to love us. Because the reason that he loves us, he finds in himself, not in us. And so there's nothing that he will ever consider in us or in this world that will ever convince him not to love us. No, he's already been convinced by himself. And the whole thrust of the argument from verse 31 to the end, but especially in verse 35, is to be able to say, I am persuaded. Not to just say, well, you know, God loves us. No, that's not enough. It's to say, I am persuaded. I am persuaded that God has loved us from all eternity, and so he ever will. All who are in Christ. And yet at the same time, To make the love of God fit with the the, the decree of God, which are often set at odds. You say, well, God loves the world, so how could you say that he damns part of the world? But do you realize that what Paul is saying here is that it is, and he'll go on to say this all through chapters 9 through 11, when he argues for election in this powerful way, that it is the love of God itself that distinguishes one man from another. That's the thing we have to see. The love of God, you say, is is indiscriminate. Well, you're wrong. It is discriminate. It's the thing that distinguishes. Paul makes this argument about Jacob and Esau. Uh, He says, now, why did God choose one and not the other? In fact, if you look at the two men, and I've always felt this way, Esau was the better man, naturally speaking. And yet the amazing thing is that God loved Jacob. Well, here's the answer. Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's the will of God. That's the purpose of God. This is what stands behind the election of one and the reprobation of another. It's the love of God. It's the foreknowledge of of God, which is formed in his own eternal will and in his own perfect heart. You ask the question. This is the better way to ask the question, not why does he damn one and save another? The better question is, why does he love a single one of us? How is it that God, who dwells in an approachable light, should ever set his great heart upon A single one of us. And yet when you ask the question like that, you're staggered by the answer. It was according to his good pleasure. 
according to the purpose of his will. It was that the glory of his grace might appear in you, just as the glory of his justice would appear in another. That's the answer. It's all of God. He determines to love one and not another. That's it. You can't go beyond that. You cannot go uh, behind that in the purpose of God. The difference is not found in man. It's found in God. And yet we ask one final question. And I admit I, admit I thought this would be the end of it all, though. I, uh, as I say, there's one more sermon to go. This is a fitting way, let us see, to finish this sermon. Why does Paul not say, if that's what stands out so clearly, this is the third point. Why does Paul not say, those whom God loves, in verse 28, all things work together for good. For those whom God loves, in many ways, we could argue that would be a fitting way to put it. It would be a fitting way to put it. And yet, do you notice what he says? He doesn't say those whom God loves. He says to those who love God. All things work together for good to those who love God. Well, then the answer is this. I've just been saying that the love of God is that which distinguishes one man from another. One man is in Christ, another man is in Adam, and so it will appear on the last day. The question that we have is, in what way does this distinction appear? How is it made apparent to us and to others who is loved of God, who is in Christ and who is in Adam? How may I know that God has loved me even from all eternity? Since I've already said that he hasn't loved all indiscriminately. No, the love of God is discriminating. Well, how do I know I'm in one side and not another? In what way does it appear that I am called according to his great purpose? And Paul's answer is surprisingly simple. His answer is that it appears in my love for him. Do you remember he he just said earlier on in the chapter, that's the very thing that an unbeliever can't do. And if, if, if you lived any amount of time as an unbeliever, you can reflect upon that and see it very easily. The carnal mind is enmity toward God. The unbeliever is a God hater. The unbeliever is a God hater. The unbeliever is someone who's incapable of loving God. The unbeliever, he says in verse 8, the next verse, chapter 8, verse 8. He cannot please God. He doesn't want to. He has no interest in the will of God. He's no interest in God himself. He's a God hater. That's what a sinner is. And the greatest wonder of grace in many ways, from the standpoint of my own experience... The thing that makes it so clear to me that I'm a Christian and that I've been loved of God is that I, a God-hater, should love God. How marvelous, how wonderful is that grace which has made me love the God I once hated. My love for God. That's it. Do you realize that fits in so well with the, the larger argument? It's natural. Paul has been speaking of our sonship. Well, it's natural for sons to love the Father. Nothing is so natural. Indeed, nothing so encapsulates or expresses the idea of sonship as the idea of love. Who is a son? Well, the son is someone who loves the father and who is loved of the father. But you see, it isn't enough to say that the son is loved of the father. That isn't that does not capture the full extent of the thought. You also have to say that the son loves the father and he relates to him as a father. He expresses his sonship to the father in believing prayer and what he finds in his heart as he prays to God through the Holy Spirit, is that he loves the Father. Beyond that, I am, a, I'm, I, I am aware of his love for me. He's made me aware of it. He's persuaded me of it. And thus I love him because he first loved me. That's the argument of, 
of first John chapter four. He's speaking of the love of God in that chapter. And he's saying, well, here are the true Christians. Here are the true sons of God. It's those who love God. And yet uh, he says of us what we should be able to say of ourselves. We only love him because he first loved us, which is to say we never could love love him if he didn't first love us, if he did not make us aware of his love in so many ways by the ministry and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, by the preaching, by the arguments of Scripture. Do you remember how Paul puts it? I just read this a little while ago. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. He's made us aware of his love. In another place Paul says he shed abroad in our hearts the love of God through the spirit. Love is something which is practical. Which therefore can be tested. The question is this. Do I love God? Do I love God? If I love God. Well then. I will think of him. This is what Thomas Watson says. He who is in love. His thoughts are ever upon his object. God is the treasure. By this we may test our love to God. What are our thoughts most upon? Oh how far are they from being lovers of God. Who scarcely ever think. Of God. The sinner is someone, therefore, who enjoys thinking about him. He enjoys uh, meditating upon him. He enjoys sermons which are most full of him. The Christian is someone who desires him. He, He desires communion with him. Watson goes on. Love desires familiarity and intercourse. Communion with God. If I love God, I will love what he loves. Most of all, holiness. If I love God, I will hate what he hates. Most of all, sin. If I love God, as Jesus says, then I will obey him. I'll obey his commands. Indeed, I will desire to do so. My desire will be to please God. The very thing I could not do when I hated him. And I will find suddenly that I have a heart to do so. Do you remember what John says at the end of his epistle? He says, and his commandments are not burdensome. Well, not to the believer. The believer wants to obey God and he finds even his view of the commandments have changed. Oh, how I love your law. It's not a burden to me. It's a help to me. I would say in these five ways, the love of God appears. And it needs to be asked honestly. Well, let me restate them. I will think of him. I will desire him. I will love what he loves, I'll hate what he hates, and I'll obey his commands. Those are the tests of our love for God. And so it needs to be asked honestly, do I love God? Do I love God? Not because I decided to love him. No, in spite of myself, in spite of my sin, I find to my own amazement I love him. To say that is to say what I said at the beginning. I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm a God lover now. A natural God hater. I've been made a God lover by the grace of God. There is no other explanation. And yet I can honestly say it's true. I can honestly say that now I love him whom I once hated. Is that your testimony? Is that how you feel about God? Is that how you live? Can you honestly say I love him? I love him whom... Who has loved me first in Christ? Has God broken your heart? Has he caused his love to shine in so that you cannot but love him in return?
has the love of God appeared in Christ Jesus to you, a guilty sinner. You see, your testimony is this. I could never love him but for this. My natural animosity is so great. But indeed, now I find that I love him. And the thing that appears to me in this more than anything else, the thing that I become conscious of in my love for him is his purpose for me. Even as Paul says in verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Amen. And let us come to the table together.